here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the drummer, percussionist, John Sparrow, who's had a life in music and also is a member of the iconic folk punk band, The Violet Femmes and other musical adventures throughout his career. Anyway, this is the interview, so after several minutes of interest and for casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. John, it's over to you. You mean as, so I have to ask, <clears throat> you mean as a musician or as a person? As a, per- I suppose I up- as a person, you know, yeah. as, as a kind of, because often, you know, um, I mean, obviously, you obviously get off, you know, influences later on, but just that kind of, often when we're very young, we see something on telly or you see a film or you meet somebody and it can yeah, have a I massive influence. So I just wondered if there was anything that, that sparked an interest, because obviously your parents can push you in a direction, but sometimes it's, it's something quite random that can make you kind of go in a way that um, no one would have predicted. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because I was just talking to my partner. Uh, we're doing this festival in Los Angeles, and one of the bands is Tears for Fears. So as I was, uh, I must have been in the third grade, and I was in the Little League baseball team. And I remember in the summertime driving with my mother back and forth to practice, and Tears for Fears, which is one of the bands that's on the festival, I, uh, everybody wants to rule the world, you know? And I heard that, and it was summer, and it... You know how you, when you're in a car and and you hear a song and it just it's it's just the right moment that you know the wind's blowing in and so those were my that was one of my first moments as you know when I was younger remembering music and how it was so special and it it, it you know st- it stuck with me and then uh, because I'm 47 now I it, then you kind of fast forward a little bit and I really got into hip hop. I was I grew up in the inner city here in Milwaukee, and so I loved Run DMC, I loved Public Enemy, uh, MC Light, Kwame, all these things. I was really into that, and then also at the same time I was really into Guns N' Roses or uh, Metallica, and uh, Justice for All. Yes. Uh, so so now you're looking at my you know my uh, junior high years right yeah and then i got i got to high school and i was so my dad introduced me to the drums and uh it was mostly jazz and you know all that and then uh well the grunge that whole alternative movement happened right what a blessing because if you think about it in the 60s there was that huge music movement right Mm -hmm. well you know, through the 80s, we had glam rock and all these different things. And I mean, of course, the hip hop movement was really profound. I think we're really starting to see what an impact hip hop had on the world, you know, uh, not just on me, but in on the world. We're seeing it now. But I mean, there was a, it was kind of like eh, it wasn't that was a movement we're starting to realize now. But when grunge hit, all of a sudden I went from. Oh, I'm uh, you know I'm learning how to play drums, you know jazz and all this. To whoa, Nirvana, whoa, Red Hot Chili Peppers, whoa, Primus. And I had a, a good friend of mine who was introducing. He's like, hey, I'm really into this. The Cure, oh, Violent Femme. Oh, what is this? And I listened to that. And I'm like, wait a minute, I 
I can totally relate to this because it had a, the jazz element. See what I'm saying? Because of the way my father was raising, you know, or teaching me rather with the drums, right? Yes. I, I said, these guys got, wow, this is cool. This is, this makes sense to me. It's got the jazz element. And so that's how I kind of latched on. I know I'm kind of, you know, uh, going really quickly here through my whole history, <laughs> but, it, but that's, that's kind of, what my history was. You yes. Know, um, it's in, yes, it's so an it's, interesting... It's two different worlds. Yeah, absolutely. And just, just to explain, so you said your dad father was a drummer so that's quite because often you know I I sort of mentioned you know did did, you know to musicians did your parents play much of an influence on you and and it's really I would I wouldn't say it's split it's more like 20% say yes and 80% say no my parents were just working hard they didn't really have time for much else because of that a a certain age group and I guess they just were just doing what they had to do to get by and then the you know the kid who then turns out to be the musician just had to hustle and and sort of get what they could to, to to make it because um yes i suppose people in their 60s that might have been there but you're you've obviously got a bit of a different sort of family setup here haven't you well my dad was that person uh my dad was a, a county supervisor here in milwaukee and my mom was a nurse and they were very hard working and uh my dad he, he started kind of playing with this guy named frankie yankovic he's a big polka legend here in um in the u.s but my dad I mean, he couldn't he couldn't support a family doing that, and um, so he stuck with his day job. But yeah, so he was a drummer, and it was always a passion of his. But he didn't pursue it any further, like I did. You know what I mean? So I have both of those stories where it's I have someone in the family that's a musician. In this case, my father. But he was. They were all. They were also very hardworking people. Just like you know, in the UK. Like, uh, again, I, I go back to all my friends in Manchester, which I've never been to Manchester. In this case, they they always tell me it, it, it sounds a lot like how Milwaukee is, you know, like this hardworking or Liverpool, for example. Like, you think about the Beatles. Yes. Those guys would play for eight hours, right? They would yeah. play gigs and they would just go all day. You know, they had that working class ethic but they were playing music that's how my father was so that's how I grew up as well you know yeah absolutely I think um yes that's it you know what you mentioned working class was one of those things that most people just had to work on but interesting enough I did do an interview with um another drummer I've done quite a few drummers Hunt Sells and his dad happened to be Soupy Sells is it Soupy Sells who was this kind yeah. of quite a famous entertainer in the 60s and obviously there was Hunt who was the drummer and then Tony yeah I know was... Hunt yeah, I don't know him personally but yeah I know who you're talking about yes yeah, and Tony was the bass player who were in the you know, Iggy Pop's band and then Tim Machine with David Bowie but I mean Hunt came from a very jazz background actually all his kind of musical influences yeah. were jazz people sure. so was your dad a, a was that his kind of type of music? Was jazz and all all big bands, all big, all band. big band jazz, right? And that's what I grew, that's what I grew up playing. But again, keep in mind, like I was saying, I know I repeat myself, but as before, I be, I, I got involved with drums. I was into hip hop and some of that metal. But then, when as far as a drummer, it started off with literally with dance music, polka music, and big band, and that's that's what he could offer me. Yes. Um, and, and so my, so you were asking a question earlier. What was my moment? I mean, a Tears for Fears thing was before being a drummer. As a drummer, live at Carnegie Hall, Benny Goodman. That is, oh, that's my everything. Yeah, that yes. was my everything as far as, yeah. Sing, sing, sing. 
Yep. Yeah. That's... The whole album, the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was, that was, you know, the pinnacle of it, but yeah, no, I mean, that was my album. That was the one I went to that to this day, it, you know, just really hits me. Yes, because I do remember in the 80s, I was particularly fond of uh, Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese films, and I remember he did one, was it New York, New York, where he plays a sort of a big band leader, which everybody loved at that time. Oh, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. No, no that's no, a classic, sure. but but obviously, you know, I always hark back because the, the Second World War seemed to play a massive um, impact in the the landscape and culture of the East Anglia, East Anglia in, you know, in Britain. And um, because there was the, you know, oh, they, they call it the, sure. the friendly invasion with all the Americans. But then there was also musicians like Glenn Miller and his big band came over and played at all these st- uh, stations, as well as people like James Stewart and uh, Clark Gable was here as well. But obviously Glenn Miller, people used to have stories about him playing in all these Air Force bases around East Anglia, which was quite amazing. Yeah, you know, it's funny. So you bring up the uh, Second World War. I mean, my father here in the States, obviously, we were never bombed. You know, I mean, you know, thankfully. But you guys in, in the UK, you guys were getting bombed. And I was reading, I'm a big fan of uh, Cream. And Ginger Baker talks a lot about having to go through. I think Ginger probably is right around the same, well, I mean, he's past, of course, but he was right around the same age as, as my father. And so. My dad talks about having to do the bomb drills, but Ginger talks about actually getting bombed in, in, in England, you know what I mean? And so yeah, it's it's amazing how that plays into your growing up, you know what I mean? And maybe I don't, I, I, maybe I'm like wandering here, you know, but yeah, you guys had a different experience. Yes, there. well, actually, we did, if you, you know. if you read Keith Richards' book, he also talks about, you know, you, you know, there would have been a bomb dropped on his pram, but he, I think his mum moved it yeah. and it just missed him, and you know, so it's kind of one of those things because it's doing, horrible. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> I know that yeah. was quite, you know, fate and all that, but you know, during that period, if. Well, you know, some kid, you know, some were like small kids, but mostly people were born just after war. People like David Bowie, Lemmy were all born in born in sixty, I think, no, nineteen forty seven. And so, but their childhood was born in those areas that were still damaged by the Second World War. So they they played in bomb craters or they saw buildings that were empty still because they hadn't, you know, because Britain was very poor during the fifties and sixties. It was absolutely you know, it did it didn't really pick up very much during that time. So I think that kind of shaped a lot of those people who like you were saying about being working class but you know music was the one way out of this kind of potentially grey world and suddenly you know 63 the Beatles appears and then the Stones then the Kinks and the Who and then Psychedelia you can see the kind of desperation that people had to sort of go that bit further and then you know obviously the Beatles up to 1970 and then they finished, then you had that glam rock, then heavy metal, then prog rock. And, you know, things moved a lot, you know, because the UK, you know, is really tiny compared to America. So, you know, movements change so quickly in this country compared to probably... Well, it's 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 amazing. Well, it's not amazing. I mean, it, it, when you go through these things and you grow up with all these things, how it affects your art, whether it's music or, or if you're a painter, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a significant thing to go through. I yes. mean, we're, we're, spo- we're spoiled in the United States. I mean, I, I really do believe that. I mean, we haven't gone through the things that so many other countries have had to go through, you know. 
No, so, but it was it was interesting because you yeah. mentioned Manchester. And but obviously... I respect I respect that. Yeah, you know, I respect you know. I mean, I respect what all these other countries have gone through throughout time. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, yes. Because so... I've I've had the opportunity to travel all over the world and see this. You know what I mean? And see. So there's something to be said, you know, about how that affects art. Well, I think, um, yeah, absolutely, because I think that landscape, like you mentioned Manchester, you know, a band like the Smiths or Joy Division couldn't have been... They could could only make that music because it, you know, in from from where they lived. Correct. Because, you know, it was grey, it was wet, you know, the pavements were tiny, the houses... Well, I mean, think about violent violent femmes. I mean, when they started, you know, waiting for the bus... I mean, literally, Gordon would get on the bus and he would drive from, I think he was living here on one side of town in Milwaukee, and he would drive to another side of town so he could play a gig. Or they were going to a gig and they had to wait for the city bus. <laughs> I mean, it's not the same. Again, I'm not trying to relate that to war or, you know, but it, it really it creates the landscape for the songwriting, right? Yes. You know, like in that case, I'm not. You know, I'm not equating that to war, you know, again. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's your environment. Now, the Smiths, now, I, and I feel ignorant in this case, where's Johnny Marr from? Oh, Manchester as well. They're both, they're all from Right, Manchester. okay, okay, okay. So I, I wasn't really sure about that. So I actually, I was uh, with the, we were touring in Tasmania, and Johnny Marr was on the bill. So I was having tea in the, in, like, in the lobby. And this, this fellow was sitting there, and I was taking care of my bills back home. I was on the laptop. He and I started talking. I don't, so I was – first of all, I was never I, – I didn't know about – I knew about the Smiths, but I wasn't a fan, you know. So this guy was really nice. He started talking about me. And I said, hey, are you on a tour? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I have a band. And so I said, oh, who are you playing with? He said, well, my name is Johnny Marr. I said, oh, yeah, I've heard of you. Uh, Smiths, right? Yeah. Well, anyway <laughs> – so we had a 45 minute long conversation about just the passion of music. And he was, he's the most down to earth person I've ever met. Yes. And it seems to me like he must've been raised a lot like me, hard work, hard, hardworking parents. And just, he was raised the right way. And not, he was an arrogant, he was the sweetest person I've ever met and such a passion for music. So I don't know if that means anything, but yes. he brought the Smiths and I, that's my, he said, well, come over, come over to my stage and check it out. And I fell in love with his playing. I was just, I never was exposed to the Smiths. You know what I mean? I, it, it wasn't a thing. I was like, oh yeah, okay. And the same thing goes for another band at uh, uh, Darker Waves that we're playing with, Echo and the Bunnymen. I wasn't exposed to them. I, I, I didn't know anything. I was like, uh, okay, I've heard of that. And then we toured with them twice. I became fast friends with Ian. He's like one of the greatest guys I've ever met in my life, you know? And so it, you know, it's, that's my connection. I know I'm rambling, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I think a lot of it has to do with how you're raised and, you know, just good people are good people. And now these are, you know, so yeah, Johnny was really, he was really a sweetheart and he's a great player and Ian's a sweetheart. And uh, these are legends, you know, from, from you know, from where you're from, you know, yes. well, well, but good, good people, you know. Well, you had you had you had the Smiths from Manchester and Echo and the Bunnymen from Liverpool. I must admit, Liverpool, I was, yeah. I was impressed you, you that you can't um, go wrong there, right? <laughs> no, you can't actually. That's um, that's quite something. But there's a record really label. Nice there's there's a record label yeah. called Cherry Red Records who've been they're very good on doing compilations, and they did one. 
Mostly from bands from the seventies up to probably the nineties on the on the on Manchester. And there was like a seven CD box set and one on Liverpool, and that was a five CD box set. And that was that period of, you know, from punk to say you know the nineties. And there were just so many yeah. bands, and that was amazing. But I'm mean, really impressed because I know a few people who who met Ian and um, from the Echo and the Bunnymen, and often say, yeah. it's really hard to know what he says because you just agree because he's got such a strong accent. So I was impressed that you were able to um, understand what he was oh, talking about. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear, I, I, no, I understand what you're saying. Uh, no pun intended. But, um, yeah, it's, it, yeah, I never had a problem. He's, I never had a problem like that with him. Um yeah, no, no, no. Especially no. being an American, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, no, no problem. Yeah, I understand it because as you go further north, all my friends, that, as you know, where they're from in the, in the UK, as you go further north, it's like you can, you can hear the, the accent is heavier and a little bit. Never had a problem with him, though. No. No, that's cool. But it's interesting because he's he, a sweetheart. Yeah, I mean, and they've, they've all, they're all survivors. I mean, once you've had your honeymoon period in a band and then you've had to sort of go through the <laughs> other side, that, that's where you find your sort of other yeah. side, isn't it, when you realise, OK, this is... this is Because a lot of bands who I've interviewed, obviously these are the ones who had that moment, were a bit surprised how easy it was, and then it's over, and then it's like, right, now the hard work begins. It's like you've had that kind of five-year narrative. You had the honeymoon period for 12 months. The first single, oh, that went well. The first album, brilliant. Right. The tour, that's great. The second album, everything's going well. And then the third album can be a bit tricky. And then the music scene, what I find is the music scene can change every five years, and suddenly... You know the the kids, the sixteen year olds, eighteen year olds want their their sort of sound, and they're a bit bored. What happened five years before? And those bands are just needing a rest. But by the time they've come back, they've realised the scene has changed, and that's when those bands can find it kind of tricky to know where to to go next. Well, that, I think that's happening way faster now with these kids. I mean, you and I. I mean, I'm a little younger than you, but I think that was the case when we were coming up now it's it's even faster you don't you know like yeah so what when we're talking in regards to let's say violent fans or echo and a bunny man or whoever right smith it was a slower right there was a sophomore slump yeah and then you're always trying to kind of keep up with things i mean for example i think people give metallica a hard they give them a hard time because they're like well they started going, you know, they were, it wasn't, no longer is it uh, Master of Puppets or Injustice for All. No, they do the Black Album, and they're like, oh, they're sellouts. It's like, or maybe they're just doing what they, you know, what they feel, because they have that ability. But then keeping up with things, right. You know, I mean, that's a challenge as well. Yes. You know, like, uh, I, yeah, I, I assume that's where you're going with this. Yeah, you know? but absolutely. Music is changing so fast. Everything's changing so fast. Years ago, I think that it was a five, maybe, a, yeah, right, a, a five-year gap where it's like, okay, well, we just put this out. We finally got home from tour. Now let's we have to record again. And all these other bands are, are coming out. How do we keep up with this? And, and, and the stress from the, yeah, the record labels are, you know, yeah, I mean, it's something, right? Yeah, and one thing I've noticed is that, you know, like my, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, David Bowie was my first single and first love and first album, with, you know, changes. Oh, that's, that's, yeah, so, but what I find and sort of seeing him and a few other people is that you can have that moment in one period, and obviously his was pretty amazing. In the 70s, he did one album a year, produced several albums, toured, 
relocated. Sure. So the eighties, um, the seventies were amazing. But then his eighties work was the what I what my theory this is is that he suddenly was wondering where to go to next. So he then picks he instead of leading the scene and not being interested, he almost wonders what's going on and then sort of almost copying another kind of musical genre. And that happened with a p- few people from the seven eighty seventies or sixties whose eighties work. Yeah, right. That's right because the the pressure comes in, or you know, you have people in their ear. I would assume I can't speak for these artists. Yes, but you have people in your ear now telling you, "Hey, listen, so we have to do another record. Let's kind of make it this way because this is what's good, you know." And then you know, there's a lot of artists I'm sure that, like you said, with Bowie, if that's the case, maybe people were in his ear. I don't know the history. I don't know him. No, but. You get people in your ear and they're like, hey, listen, we should probably go this direction. This is what's happening right now. Yes. This is you know, and then the, the next thing you know, you're going that direction. Uh, yeah, that's, you know. You just copy, yeah. I mean, because the 80s had a very, they had the Trevor Horn production sound with that, with the drums. The the percussion was just very hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and that that was quite hard. But the, well, the, other, the interesting thing about the 80s, and you mentioned hip hop, because we had, you know, we had the music papers. We had three weekly music papers, Sounds, NME, Melody Maker. Then we also had several DJs, one being John Peel, who was a great gatekeeper. Oh, yeah, of course. And he introduced me during that period to a lot of early hip hop. And, you know, it, most of them have become quite well known, like you know, Public Enemy, LL Cool J, Curtis Blow, and then. But there was also people like Grandmaster Flash, the Sugar Hill Gang. There was also a lot of female rappers like Roxanne Chante and the Real Roxanne, and people like that. And then as the as that eighties went, there was a sort of sampling of other people. Like there was a band called Stetsasonic who had quite a jazzy vibe, talking all that Come jazz. On, man. Yeah, of, of course. You know, that was, in, you know, aside from, you know, my personal history as far as being a musician. Yeah, right. So now we talk about music history. And at that time with hip hop, public enemy, these were all artists that were trying to, they were they were getting a message out. Not just about how, what the environment they were in, but what's going on in the world. And Chuck D and Flavor Flav, I mean, Wow. I mean, what they were trying to, they were trying to, they were using, they were, first of all, they were, they were awesome tracks. They were hyped. They, it was hitting, but the message was there. Now, if I'm not mistaken, is it Moni Love? Yeah. Uh, is she, she's from the UK, correct? Yeah, that's I right. I could be wrong about that. Okay. So Moni Love, what this, what people don't realize is Moni Love, the first time I saw her was with Queen Latifah. Right. And the single was called Ladies First. Yeah. Now we're talking about the early eight. Well, I'm sorry, mid to late eighties. <laughs> Women, ladies first. That was unheard of. I mean, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't t- totally unheard of, but then everybody knows Queen Latifah for being this. Uh, she was on some sort of sitcom or something, right? Yeah. But think about the again. It goes back to the message that hip hop was trying to portray. Whether it was uh, Queen Latifah and Monet Love. It was uh, Public Enemy, all these different people. There was a lot. There was a lot being done. Now, Grandmaster Flash, of course, these are the originators. They're talking uh, again. These are the people that influence even N.W.A., who I, I love. Right? They're talking about the struggle in the city and like, hey man, this is what's going on. And you know, in a lot of ways, to me, it's it is like punk rock. It's it's just it's a it's a different genre of saying punk you know like saying hey like no this is this is BS I'm tired of being treated like this uh, 
whatever, you know what I mean? It's, it's getting the message across of, of the struggle that's going on in whoever's community, you know, they just, they choose their genre, you know? Yes. And, and, I really, re- I, re- I respect hip hop a ton. Yes. Because I, I grew up with that, you know. And I, I do yeah, remember. And also, they were using a lot of jazz influences. I'm sorry to interrupt you. They were using a lot of the samples were jazz influenced. I, I honestly feel like I learned how to groove because of hip hop. That's where I learned how to feel swing and groove. And it was because of people like Public Enemy and guys like Kwame or Special Ed or Sonic. Uh, Rob Bass. I mean, I, because that was before I was a musician. So I, that's how I, I learned what the swing was, the groove, you know? Yes, absolutely. And obviously we had James Brown and... Um, well, of course. And now James Brown influenced all of them. And that was... Yeah. And, and then and then David Bowie always had great drummers. He had Des... Was it Dennis Davis who was in his kind of low... I period. don't know who his drummer is, but, you know... David Bowie had the swing. Yeah, he, he yeah, he had groove. Yeah, absolutely. So, so so for you then, during the O years, we had sort of, you know, hip hop had become really popular and then it became kind of even bigger in the O years and then obviously yeah. that that grew. And then we had the grunge period as well. So what was your kind of musical journey during this period? You mean in like the 2000s? Yes. No, no the 90s. So we we we've kind of had oh, this 90s. Kind of, Yes. It was Primus, like I said earlier, you know, I was Randley, but it was Primus. Once I started looking outside of jazz and hip-hop, it was, yeah, Violent Femmes, Primus, Nine Inch Nails. I remember my friend told me, he's like, hey, listen to this. This guy made this on a computer. I'm like, how do you make music on a computer? You know, but that was, uh, yeah, that was, no, that was mid-90s. I'm sorry, I take that back uh, with Nine Inch Nails. But uh, early 2000s and all that, it was kind of a weird period. I really kind of dove into progressive rock. So I started getting into King Crimson, Emerson, Lincoln Palmer, Soft Machine, because it was kind of a weird period. Things were happening here in the Midwest in Chicago with uh, Touch and Go Records. You had uh, bands like Shellac and all that. Um, Steve but it was kind of a weird, it, it, the, from coming out of grunge, rather, you know, it was... It was kind of a dry period. But yeah, the grunge period was mostly, that was the influencer. Pearl Jam. Uh, Dave Eversees was on Versus and Vitology. I mean, I heard that. And I'm like, wow, this, is, this, this guy plays the way I want to play. Aggressive, you know. They were, they were putting on a message as well. It's funny to think, too, with Pearl Jam, they were fighting uh, Ticketmaster. And now you see all these younger bands now. And they're fighting Spotify. <laughs> yes. You know, how cyclical, you know what I mean? Um, but then, but then, so you know, we, yeah. but did you see um, the film that came out probably quite recently on the Woodstock, the, the second Woodstock in 1999, which kind of all went terribly wrong because they, they had quite a horrendous kind of lineup of hardcore rock bands and the audience went quite feral. Yeah. I mean, there was a kind of a bit of a shift during that period, wasn't there, from that that kind of you know, hard bloke. Misogyn- that was, right, right. It was, again, yeah, it was, it seemed, you're, I agree. It was like the beginning of that, okay, this is the end of that period, and now where do we go? Yes. That's what I was going to say. It was that early 2000s thing. Um, yeah. That's, I mean, at least personally, I was getting into different types of music, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I well, saw that happen. 
Because it was kind of interesting, because I had an older brother who was seven years old, and he was very into prog rock, and I used to sneak into his room and listen to these records like, yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barkley, James Harvest. Oh, yeah. I used to love all that. I guess you like Bill Bruford and Phil Collins on drums and all those kind of people with, you know, just ideas which were just completely wacky, this being in the 70s. So did you, so how did you, you went mentioned Soft Machine. I mean, that's quite, that's getting quite obscure. King Crimson, most people go, yeah, Yes, you know that's quite popular, but but the 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 Canterbury scene is quite a niche niche kind of groove, isn't it? Well, see now when you say that, I didn't even know that was a. I I just know the band. See what I mean? I so I didn't even know that was a whole scene. That's my ignorance. But yeah, King Crimson. Yeah, I was just we were reaching for something in the early two thousands, and that's kind of what I personally grabbed onto. So King Crimson Red was a big one uh and then even you know uh in the quarter crimson king uh was that wait that's yeah that's what well, no it was the uh live stuff that uh Fripp put out yes what was the name of it was epitaph i can't remember well, yeah, but anyways regardless you know what i'm saying yes no i didn't look i didn't look at it as a scene i just looked at it as these are the artists that I'm being exposed to, you know. Nice, nice. So then yeah, how's, yeah. how's your drumming, you know, how's this progressing? Because obviously, you know, you're starting to sort of become more interested and, in, you know, entering into being in bands. What was what was your kind of direction at this stage? Uh, you mean in the early 2000s? Yes. So I had a band called The Danglers, and it was a progressive rock band. It was stand-up bass, uh, electric violin and drums. And that was that was what we were influenced by. We were into King Crimson, Soft Machine, uh, Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. And so we were doing at that time. We were doing progressive rock. You know, when you would tell people you were in a, a prog band, they would go, Ugh, uh, <laughs> they didn't like it. You know, who was our saving grace was Mars Volta. You know, because Mars Volta, I really believe, brought prog in, it, it put prog back into a, a a good place, so to speak. You know. Yes. And so that's I was listening to a lot of prog rock, and I was doing a lot of jazz. Um, yeah, and then one thing led to another. I met Brian Ritchie because he plays shakuhachi. He had moved back from uh, he moved back to Milwaukee from New York. Uh, the bass player in the band, the Danglers that I had, it was the prog band. Uh, he started playing with Brian. I said, hey, get me an audition. Like, I want to play with Brian. You know, like, what are you guys doing? So he had, like, a Zen jazz group. And that's how this whole Violent Femmes thing kind of progressed. But, yeah, it was kind of a weird period there in the 2000s. You know, like, we didn't, there was no musical identity. You know, like you were saying, grunge kind of, eh. You know, and hip hop even was kind of going. Eh. Yes, it was. Yeah. It was yeah. all. It was. It was kind of a bit directionless, really. Or you know. Yeah, and I feel like we're actually directionless right now a little bit. You know, what I mean, of course, we have all the, uh, you know, the, uh, the her- we call heritage acts, right? But I don't. I don't know what's going on with me. I, maybe because I'm out of touch. I don't know. It's my ignorance. But what? What is really? Maybe there needs to be another movement. I don't know how that. You know. Who knows? It's it's kind of because I do you know obviously I do a lot of interviews with bands mostly you know they're based sure, from, from the sort of eighties and and I think they 
they kind of just have now got their little scene and they're kind of enjoying it, but they don't really, even though they've got this amazing history, they have no idea of how it all works anymore. They just think, I don't know what a young band, how how a young band copes. You know, we we had a certain idea, you know, there was a certain industry, sure. I suppose. There was there were labels, there were managers, there was stations, there was there was the press. They, there was something there that they, they could sort of follow, almost like a career progression. They even I guess at the time it didn't feel like that, but now they kind of thought, oh, yes, that seemed quite straightforward. Whereas now, how do you get your well, record played and stuff like that? Yeah, well, so it's funny. So we were talking, we're, we're talking right now about the early 2000s, right? And what music, what, what was being produced. However, now think about this. Now, what I was into and, you know, and, and the band, there was, it was kind of, it was tumultuous. But also the industry. So we were, we were coming into a, a time where there's no more record deals. And uh, you're like, okay, well, there's no record deals, and how do we make money? You know, and like these kids now, they're you know the younger groups, they're really um, focused on a Spotify thing, and they're you know, and it sucks. You should not, you should be getting paid what you're worth. But then all of a sudden, people could get music for free online in the early 2000s, right? We had the Napster thing. Now it goes back to Metallica, right? They yeah. were fighting that, and I'm not saying. So now you're losing, you're losing revenue. But I think, in my opinion, just change your business. Start putting time and money into your merchandising. You know what I mean? Uh, there's We've always found a way to kind of keep making money. That's my opinion, at least in the music industry. Just you have to change your business model. You yes. know, so, okay. So, okay, so uh, you're not making money on album sales anymore. Okay, well, start hitting merchandising. Start doing, uh, get involved with the licensing. That's a big, uh, that's a big money generator. You know, like as artists, I think that we need to be, well, we are, we're, we should be flexible. So the business model changes, uh, you know, that's, I'm seeing this across the board where everybody's kind of frustrated, but it's like that frustration. I mean, think about, oh, you know, like in the early days, you know, it's like, oh, we're not selling any albums because they're playing it on a radio. Well, the radio is helping you. You know what I mean? Like you just got to kind of be flexible. Yes. So I think that I think as long as you stay flexible and you look at it and you you shift your, you know, your business model, I think you can still sustain a, a healthy career in, in this world. You know, in this music world, so to speak. But again, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. You know, this is tricky. But it, it, it's 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 a strange time right now. It is. It always is a strange time, you know, and hopefully this generation, they might have a next movement, so to speak. You know, like I was fortunate, like I said earlier, we had the grunge movement. And before that, it was like, wow, everybody's talking about the 60s. That was a huge movement. Well, maybe there's something new that's going to happen. I hopefully... Hopefully somebody's going to step forward and create something, you know. Yes, and I, I remember when, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, we'd belong to the record library, you know, and get the vinyl records, and there'd be, you know... You'd, oh, I remember. Yeah. And you'd have your, you know, TDK, TDK C90 cassette, and you'd record it, and there would be a little... On the inner sleeve would be, like, home, home taping is killing music, and obviously... You know, you wouldn't have probably bought. You wouldn't have bought the record, but at least you heard it. And in some cases, if you did like the record, you would then go and buy it because you wanted to kind of own something a bit more than just a, a cassette, you know, which was a bit flimsy. It's funny, it's funny you say that because, uh, first of all, you know, I've been with the Femmes for twenty years, so I wasn't. I'm not the original guy. But that being said, I look because I'm a huge fan of. The, they were my first concert, and I'm a huge fan of the band, not just as 
you know, I'm also the drummer, but that first album probably would have sold tens of millions of copies more than they already have if it wasn't for dubbing cassettes. That was, that was, that's what we did, right? So we would dub cassettes. Could you imagine if you actually had to go and buy the album? If that didn't exist, right? We didn't have cassettes. Yes. That first album, I, I, I guarantee it would probably have sold 50 million. But instead, it's on a bunch of dumb cassettes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but with that being said, it goes back to that whole business model, right? If it wasn't for that, then, you know, the live show, I mean, people wanted to go see the live show. It was spreading the word, right? Yes. So is it is it really a detriment you know, to the band or, you know what I mean? Or did it really actually benefit? So you, what you lost in album sales, you, you probably, I can't speak for the band. I don't deal with the business, but you know what I'm saying? Like it brought a, a ton of people to your live show. Absolutely. And also, and also, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, but in those it days, could be it, any band, not just the femmes, you know. Absolutely, but in those days, if you read a review or you saw the poster with a new album, you couldn't go, "Oh, I'll just have a quick, I have a quick listen." There was no quick listen. You had to read a journalist, and then you, and a journalist, and now we know that they're quite not. I wouldn't say they're corrupt, but you know, well, I, they are a bit. Because I, I did a yeah, an interview with a PR guy <laughs> who said that they'd send them, they would send, they would send the album and a load of cocaine tucked in the inner sleeve to a bloke and say. You know, and, <laughs> and, and they would get a good review. This was in the early '80s, so you, you know, it was a different right. time, wasn't it? But it, they would take them out, get them very drunk, give them the album, and they would get a great write-up. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah, so yeah. a, a well, good a good review didn't always mean it was a good album. It might just mean it was very good cocaine at the time, and they went, oh yeah. Well, is... so so you're a little older than I am. So in my time, it was you would roll a joint and put it in a CDR case. Right. <laughs> And then, so, so, <laughs> so I, know, I know what you're saying. Yeah, so you, yeah. you'd want to have a quick listen from the record library. And I think if you did like it, sure. eventually you'd want to buy the album. But at that time, you know, money was always a bit scarce. So spending £5 on an album was like, oh, I don't know. I'm not going to take a chance because you've, yeah. already, you've already done that, you know, album of the week from the NME, realised it was rubbish. And then you thought, now I'm stuck with this rubbish album. So I don't know. I think eventually if you're a fan, you want to buy the thing because the identity and the t-shirt at a certain age it is kind of important so as as we just going back slightly trucking through the the o years how did you then become part of the the sort of the lineup of the the fems right so like i was i kind of was talking about earlier so i had that band the danglers and the bass player had uh connected with brian ritchie who plays shakuhachi as well as playing bass in the fems he had moved back to Milwaukee. He, uh, Brian wanted to do like a Zen jazz kind of group. And they were kind of auditioning drummers. Uh, I don't know if it just wasn't working out or what. And I said, I said to my friend Dave, I said, Dave, let me come and jam with you guys. Well, we already, he and I had a rapport because we had our own band. And uh, so we played with Brian and Brian said, yep, this works. And then we just started playing gigs and with, it's called a Shakuhachi uh, Club. In this case, Shakuhachi Club of Milwaukee. And so we started playing gigs around time, and I became friends with Brian. He and I hit it off as, you know, we were, you know, we became friends. And uh, at one point he said, hey, come over to the house, uh, you know, I said, yeah, after work, let's hang out. So there was a cajon there. 
he said, can you play this thing? I said, yeah, of course I can play this, you know, whatever. What, you know? And then he started, he, he started playing like, he put on the, the Femmes first album and I was like, okay, well, thank God I used to play this thing when I was 14, you know, going back to what I was telling you, you know, like I was a huge fan. I used to play the album from front to back. And I said, well, okay, I knew the songs. And he, I said, yeah, I can play this at Cajon. He's like, great, here's three dates. We're going to, you're going on tour. I'm like, wait, what? What? You know, I was married. I was like, uh, I had a full-time job. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, call the manager, you know. I said, okay, well, I'm going to say no to Brian Ritchie of Violent Femmes. You know, they were my first. Yeah. So that's how it all came about. Uh, Victor was in the band at the time, and I was playing Cajon. He was playing Snare. So that's kind of that's I was uh, like a blind audition. Yes, speak, you know, blimey. And was that yeah. and about, was that about two thousand and five time that, that this all happened? Yeah, two thousand five. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then so and... I played with I played with Victor, and then uh, there was a little bit of time off there, and then we came back and we did Coachella. And Victor was there for a few gigs. I was still playing Cajon, and then uh, Brian Viglione from uh, Dresden Dolls, he came in and took over for Victor for, uh, I think, like three years or something like that. And then he left, and I just said to Brian, I said, okay, can I just play the drums now? <laughs> and then I just started playing the drums. It was 2016 or something. Yeah, so that's kind of how that all worked out. You know? Right. By God. So you went through that period. That was the tricky period of the band, wasn't it, more than any other period that they went through? What do you, I'm sorry. What do you mean by that? Well, sort of, was the band, you know, a members leaving and 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 sort of like kind of personnel changing and stuff like that. Well, it was only really the drummer seat. <laughs> I mean, you know, Brian and Gordon were always there. Yeah, uh, yeah. So there were people. Yeah, Victor came and then uh, he left, and then yeah, Vig came in and he left, and then I came in, but. Uh, what, 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 did you say Tweaky? No, I said I don't know. I'm I didn't, sorry, I didn't. Maybe I said I said I said the the, the band was going. To, well, I suppose there was more the tricky bit of the band and and sort of reunions. Oh, tricky? Tricky, tricky, yes, a little bit more of a tricky. Uh, no, you know, it, it, here's the thing. You were talking about uh, journalists and all this stuff. You know, again, I've been in the band for 20 years, and I hear everything makes a great story, doesn't it? Um, being on the inside, there's never been any kind of whatever people think. There's never been any drama. I've never dealt with any of that. Those guys, they're, they get along great. The music's always been great. We have fun on stage. Um, I think that people are kind of looking for a story that's not there. You know what I mean? I'm not part of the business side of things. I'm in the band. Yes. But I don't know. I wish I, I literally, I mean, no, I wouldn't even if there was a story, but those guys, they're really cool with each other. You know, I'm sorry to burst everybody's bubble, but it's, it's a very healthy camp Good. in the 20 years. I, in the 20 years I've been around, I've never witnessed one problem or like animosity, never. So I'm sorry to burst everybody. No, bubble, that's, that's, a, that's I, a good thing. So what was the first time you went in the studio with the band? What was that to do? Oh, uh, so we recorded Crazy. That was uh, because Donald Barkley covered Gone, Daddy, Gone. Some, uh, there was a record label that wanted us to in, then in turn cover um, Narles Barkley, which we did Crazy. So we recorded that at the end of the Australian tour. I forget what year that was. Yes. Yeah. That was my first time being actually, yeah, right, being on an album. And it was me and Victor and then Brian and Gordon. 
Yes. And after that, once the band got back together in 2013, Victor left. Then we started doing uh, We Can Do Anything. That was with Vig on drums and me on Cajon. And then after, oh, then we did Happy New Year, I think, before that. And I'm then, starting to sound like my dad now. I'm like screwing up the years and everything. But <laughs> I remember happy. Yeah. I, I remember happy New Year because then yeah, that we, was before we can do anything. Yeah, and then we can do everything. And what was and who who did you who produced that? That wasn't with um, Martin BC, was it? You know what? Here's the thing. Uh, I know you. I looked into you. I know you love all the deep information. This is where I feel bad. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. I just know everybody was really nice, and uh, we went in there and did it. I don't remember all the names, and I apologize. No, God, that's absolutely that fine. listening to this. <laughs> yeah, because I was just think about this, you know, David. I was ex- I was just excited. I was excited to be recording with these guys. You know, yes. think about that. You know, you know. I told you my history, and it's like here I am. They were my first concert. Now I'm finally in a band and all this stuff progresses and all that. And now I'm recording with these guys, you know, and um, there's a lot of things like Ted Hutt, who he produced our last album. Was this Hotel uh, Last Resort? Correct. Yeah. So, of course, you know what I mean? But prior to that, I was never the drummer. I was just playing Cajon. So for me, I was just so honored to be there and recording with these guys. You know what I mean? Yes. So... I don't remember all the names. I apologize. No, no, the God, that's fine. So, 2019. Yeah. Is, this is when you've really you've 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 got the drums, haven't you, and percussion and the vocals. You're on this one. So, the, was that was yeah. that experience much more? Did you feel much more part of the the band at this stage? Oh, on um, Hotel Last Resort. Yes. No, I felt no. I felt like part of the band after. So the first three dates, I, I told you the story how I came in at a band. Yes. Uh, you know, so I, Brian said, here, I call the tour manager. Blah, blah, blah. So I did the first, those three dates, and a tour manager at the time, Darren Brown, he said, um, do you have a passport? And I looked at him, and I said, no. Why do I need a passport? He goes, well, because we're going to South Africa. Now, here's this kid from the Midwest in the United States. I've never, I've never been out of the country. My first, no, I didn't go to London for the first time. I didn't go to Spain. No, I'm going to South Africa for the first time. So once he told me to get a passport, then I realized this is real. And I felt like I was part of the band at that point. Like, okay, like, you know what I mean? They're making me get a passport. They're flying me across the world. That's when I felt like part of the band. As far as the drumming aspect, I don't know. I, I just always felt like part of the band. They they always made me feel, from that point on, that's when I realized it's this is real. You know? Yes, absolutely. But you do you do your other kind of musical adventures, because you did a, a concert recently called, what was it, The Robin and the Sparrow? Was this... Oh, yeah. That's, I was in Woodstock, New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's... That's a whole other long story, but um, through the fans, of course, uh, I met uh, uh, this gal that does PR for me. Her name is Abby, and she reached out through Instagram, and she said, would you be interested in coming up to Rock Academy and doing a clinic? And this is an, and I, so I went up there. I did a three-day clinic with a drum clinic, and I played with all the students. The Rock Academy, is, by the way, is fantastic. This isn't... 
this isn't like, oh, we're teaching a couple kids how to play songs. I mean, it's top notch. They teach them not just to play the songs just amazingly, but also, uh, you know, like understanding how to be a professional in the business and how to carry yourself. It's just fantastic. So one thing led to another. And I went back. I did another week clinic there. And now through that, I'm starting to meet everybody in the community in Woodstock, New York. And uh, Robin, Robin the Hammer, who's also he's done a, he's, he's he does jewelry. So he he, you know uh, Billy Idol. Yes. Um, uh, what is it? Sweet Sixteen, Sweet Little Sixteen. It's based on the Coral Castles, right? That's the song is about. Well, Robin actually did his necklace that's oh. in that video. Right. Well, anyways, I'm just trying to give you kind of a story here. So he's a blues musician as well, and I so I met him going up to Woodstock and doing these clinics. I said, why don't we just do an album? And he's like, are you serious? Like, yeah, let's do it. So in between these, these FEMS gigs, I went back to Woodstock. I just got home now here in Milwaukee, but I was just there for two weeks recording with Robin and the Sparrow, yeah. And that's how that whole thing came about right so that was last that was uh, it's pretty wild huh (laughs) (laughs) it's a pretty well it's very spontaneous i have to say so that was on that was last wednesday you did this concert uh no yeah this past correct what is today thursday friday yeah correct oh today's friday i'm sorry i'm i'm just got home i'm a little out of it no it's 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 good will you be doing more Listen, listen david i'm blessed you know, I don't. When I say like, "Oh, what day is it?" It sounds like a rock star kind of thing, but it literally is just a traveling and logistics thing. I, I, I don't even know what day of the week it is sometimes. Yes, well, I, I could see that the the band has been incredibly prolific and seeing lots of clips of of, of everybody. Sort of, um, it's a great sound. The band sound, looks and sounds like it's really on amazing form. I mean, just. Um, because I've been listening to a lot of the the sort of other albums, I suppose. There's an amazing version you do of the Culture Club. Do you really want to hurt me? Which has a has such a different vibe. Is that one that you still play live? Well, that's a great question because it made me just think about something. We used to do Children of the Revolution. You yeah. know, what? I might. You know, that's one thing. I I wish we would do that. I could maybe bring it up to the guys, but we only have two more gigs on this LA thing. But no, since I've been in a band, we've never done that one. Right. I love Culture Club, but yeah, we've never done that. You know? No. Uh, we used to do children. And, you know, it's funny with the fans, too, is that there's a lot of songs that we'll do. But we do, like, we have a basic, you know, I mean, there's like the core songs that we'll always do. And then we throw new things in there here and there, but that's one we've never done. Yes. Well, no, I just, I love that kind of, the quality of the vocal. I would love to do Crazy again, you know, because our version of Crazy, I think, is fantastic. Yes. It just has to it has to strike the you know the mood of everybody in the group I guess, you know. So when you said that you were putting on did you say you were putting on a festival with Tears for Fears or playing in a festival? Yeah, yeah, it's the Darker Waves. Um that's the 18th in Huntington Beach. Right. So it's like uh Tears for Fears, Echo and the Bunnymen. Uh I should know all this, you know, but I there's a lot of great Adivo uh, yeah, there's a lot of great groups that are involved with that. That's going to be amazing. So what have you got planned for 2024 going forward, To which isn't that far away now? Um, oh, I would assume, yeah, what do you mean with the FEMS or personally? Well, mostly with the FEMS, but personally as well, because obviously sure. you, you've got well, quite a lot of... Well, personally, yeah, I got, a lot of, I got a lot of irons in the fire. <laughs> um, with the FEMS, it, I, would, I would assume, I can't, I'm not, it's not fact, but maybe in the spring, you know, that we're going to go out again. 
but I don't know. I haven't heard anything. You know. I guess I'm, we're just kind of focused on these next two LA gigs, and then we'll go from there. You know. Blimey. Yes, I can see you've got one hell of a, a tour coming up because you've got... Yes, I've just been looking at your darker waves with New Order, the B-52s. You see it now? Yeah, B-52s. See, now I feel bad because I didn't remember them, but I'm I'm just worried about getting on the flight next week. You know what I mean? Like, I'm thinking about my own personal details. But ironically, the B-52s, that was, the, that was my first rock concert. It was the Violent Femmes opening up for B-52s here in Milwaukee. Yes, my God, that's going to be just one <laughs> amazing concert because you've also got, yes, soft cell. There's a lot of history for me personally. Yeah. There's a there's a lot of history, and the chameleons who've got this most amazing sound. So um, it's going to be fantastic. So yeah, so more tours. Do you, what about because it's been a few years since you've been in the studio recording an album? Is there any potential or possible new new sort of material being recorded? Uh, that's the that's the age old question. Um. <laughs> that has that's up to those guys it's that's not my department you know yes yeah i don't know if if it if it comes up i'm there and when yeah, you and when, and when you're not in the band what's your next what's your other bits and pieces that you do to um keep it i going? do a lot of jazz locally here in in the, in the midwest and then uh it seems like a lot of i'm fl- doing fly dates but me, me personally going out and working with other artists in different parts of the country so I mean I'm open to anything, but now we're heading into the holiday season, so we'll see. You know, I mean things kind of slow down, but there's I have things coming up. You know, what I mean personally, but nothing solidified yet. Yes, and have you how have you found you know the playing live and and the live scene since we've had that lockdown period? Has it sort of picked up? as it was before or is it different it seems like it yeah it does seem like it's picking up and people are relaxing a little bit um you know uh we can all agree that you know that whole situation it was it's real i've had i personally i can only speak for myself i've had it six times i had all the shots i went through it um what i'm seeing as far as live shows and people i think that we accepted it happened Yes. And we have we're everybody's moving on, you know. It's not a political statement or anything like that on my part, but I think that people are we're trying everybody seems to be trying to get back to what is we thought was normal, you know. Yes. That's what I'm seeing. But yeah, it was a tough time, wasn't it? It, it was, was really rough. It was very tough. You know. It was very tough. It really affected so many so many people, you know, not only physically, you know, with their health, but uh, all these different industries, and um, I think we're just trying to. That's the human. I think that's the human condition is that we want to just keep fighting and moving forward. So that's what I'm seeing, at least in my world with music, is that everybody's just like, okay, let's keep going. You know, let's just let, let's do this. You know. Yes, the human yeah. spirit to okay, to make. But it, it certainly had an impact financially on so many people. You know, what I mean, and mentally. You know, the mental health thing is been you know it affected a lot of people so no absolutely we move forward we do yeah, we, the, we human, do try. The, the human spirit is to keep working and moving going back to the working class thing right yes absolutely you know, it's like okay well let's pull up our pants and keep working <laughs> yeah. i mean if you could have That's whispered if you if you could have whispered something to your 16 year old self starting out is there anything in particular that you would have gone aha yes that would have been handy or focus on this or focus on that thing i just wondered if there was anything that you would have thought with your you know decades of experience and work and you know creativity 
I was just thinking about that earlier today. I think that I would tell myself, hey, hang in there. You don't even know what you're in for. <laughs> it's all going to work out. It's all going to work out. Yes. Yeah, because I, I couldn't imagine. I mean, I'm so blessed to work with, you know, with the fans and all the people I've worked with. The friends I made, you brought up Iggy Pop, and I was thinking my my dear friend who worked with the Femmes for many years, uh, Steve McKay, played saxophone on uh, Funhouse. He's he, he's since passed, but the friends I've made, the people that I've been, you know, so fortunate to work with. So yeah, I would tell my 16 year old self, "Hang in there, buddy. Don't don't get down. Everything's gonna work out." So maybe my 80 year old self will tell my 47 year old self, "It's it, everything's cool." Don't get worked up, you know. <laughs> yes. So I, that answers the question, you yeah. know. It does because, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's very easy to sort of think, oh, because a lot of people say, oh, I wish I didn't. You get scared. You get stuck in a moment. You, you know? get stuck I mean, in, think yes. about, like you said, you know, the pandemic thing. We were supposed to go to Australia and New Zealand. We were going to have a tour. And all of a sudden it's like nothing. Like literally not only no tour, but I can't leave the house. So... After all that, I mean, everything's roses, you know. It's <laughs> yes, it's, yeah. It's you gotta you gotta stay positive, you know. Absolutely, no, that's good. Well, look, I hope you, you know, it's, it's, I love your little the concert you had last Wednesday, but I'm also thinking your your dark darker waves does look quite extraordinary. So I think you'll have an amazing time. Oh yeah, it, no, listen, let's be honest, David. Yeah, that's kind of a big deal. I'm gonna definitely be out there fanboying on Tears for Fears. And I'm gonna, because I'm a fan of music. I'm, I'm in the, I'm in my favorite band. I'm the drummer in one of my most famous, or, uh, you know, like they're iconic to me. Yes. I'm a, so I still fanboy. I go out there. I mean, I go out and I, I. It's great because I'm a, I'm afforded this luxury of going up to some of my idols and saying, "Oh my God, oh my God, I love you." You know, I don't say it like that. You know what I mean? But I'm respectful. But yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Those fest, it is iconic. It is iconic. And because, I mean, you know, the band's been going for over 40 years. Are you looking at the audience and thinking, blimey, we've, you know, has the demographic changed and having. No, no. The only thing that's happened is since 2005. So I would see that like it would be like a mother, for, for example, it'd be like a father and a son or a mother and daughter, whatever. Now we're getting into mother. Or sorry, grandmother, daughter, or and then granddaughter. Right. Or you know, so it's no, it has it's it's just it, it's it, it, it's it's just kind of evolving in that regard. You know what I mean? It's not like oh, it's only young young kids. Oh, it's only old timers. You know what I mean? You're seeing the generations now, and they're bringing and, they, and then you see the grandkid with the grandmother, and they're like looking at me going like I'm Elvis and you're like, Oh, this, oh. and I'm like, this is awesome. No, <laughs> no, no, no. It just, it, it, the band is timeless, you know? Yes, absolutely. And what, yeah, yeah. what, what sort it's of right of path. The violent fans are a rite of passage too. Yes, absolutely. You know, you know what I mean, and what, what it's the voice of every younger generation and then the people that what lived through those years in their life where it meant something to them. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Is there any particular track or tracks that you just love to play? You know, with the band is that you know that absolutely, I hear, yeah, which absolutely yeah, grew pro- for you. 
Yeah, Promise off the first album. That's my favorite. And then Mother of a Girl off of three. Um, I'm Nothing, which we re-recorded, uh, but that was on New Times as well, just acoustic. Uh, nothing Worth Living... Well, we don't play it, but I mean, my favorite song. Yeah, Nothing Worth Living For. But playing, yeah, Promise and um, Mother of a Girl. Those Excellent. Are my, personally, my two... Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. This is. <laughs> yeah. I'll have another listen and with extra. Well, you know, listen, David. It, 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 again, I, I keep repeating this, but I'm in one of my most like I idolized those guys growing up. So I'm here. So I have this inside track. You know what I mean? Like I get to you know be a part of it. It's it's a blessing. Yes. Well, I'd imagine absolutely. It's it's kind of and, and the guys. And it's cool because they always say, don't meet your idols, right? Well, now I'm in a band with my idols, but they're also my colleagues, and um, they're they're just fantastic people. That's nice. It's really a blessing, yeah. And we're we're firing on all cylinders, too. The band sounds great. Yes. And will you be doing, I mean, you said you got South Africa. Oh, no, you had South Africa. Do you have any plans of touring abroad next year, or is that still a thing that's in the pipeline? I hope so. But I haven't heard anything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's always tricky. No, I wish I could give you some inside information, but no, I mean, it's one step at a time. Yes, absolutely. Well, look, have an amazing yeah. winter. And, and Thanks so much, David. I hope that I gave you all the information. That yes, you it's been brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot. I, I is... tend to ramble. Because, I, I, you know, listen, I'm a music fan as well. You know what I mean? I'm a musician. And so I tend to ramble and get excited and want to talk about 8 million things at once, you know, but um, it's, all it's good. a pleasure you know, talking to you and, you know, anytime if you want to contact me and the door is open. Brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much. This has been brilliant. And look, have a lovely day. And um, yes. You as well, man. Take care there. And I'm going to go to bed. Okay. See you later. Bye-bye. All right. Cheers. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. See you. Bye. And that, dear listener, as you can gather, is the end of the interview with John Sparrow. Find out about his life in music and also his recent activities in music. Um, If you want to contact him, he has got a Facebook page, John Sparrow, just go for drummer, percussionist, um, etc. There is information there. Um, If you want to contact me, David Eastall, at, um, yes, the C86 Show, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived, aren't you lucky, dear listener? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, it's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.